question and the special prosecutor in this case, which we know in reality that isn't likely to happen. So uh, so there's a, a fascinating situation here where if Donald Trump were to be found guilty in that, but also to be elected president of the United States in the next election, then it raises the question, can he just simply uh, uh, basically find himself immune and and pardon himself for whatever actions? And that raises another interesting court case. If he loses that race, then then this would still continue and perhaps be relevant. But it throws off the entire thing. I think the special counsel, Jack Smith, was trying very hard to have this done early so it would not affect the election. But others have saying that in itself is a political act and they've been critical of Smith. So we, we it, we're not going to see the outcome of this case. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, and this is 1A. Sungmin, you know, I got to ask you, Trump has been trying to delay this trial until after the election for all the reasons that Steve just laid out for us. Is this a win for him? And what implications could this have um, for other cases that Trump is facing? Well, I think anytime you can delay any court proceeding and and the strategy that Donald Trump is taking is certainly could be a win for him. Because remember, he is juggling multiple criminal cases. This isn't the the immunity argument pertains to the the federal case in the District of Columbia that that deals with the 2020 election a subversion case. However, he has multiple other cases going on. Obviously, the one uh, trial, one criminal trial that we know for now is supposed to start fairly soon is in the hush money payments case, which starts in New York on March 25th. But he's also dealing with a separate federal case, dealing with his uh, mishandling and holding of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. The case was supposed to, the or the, sorry, excuse me, the trial was supposed to start May 20th, but no one thinks it's going to start May 20th. And there's actually a hearing in Florida today to delay that further, to see how far in the summer that um, that case should go. Jack Smith is asking for some time in July. Obviously, Trump's lawyers are asking for after the November election in that case as well. But just in case, as an insurance policy, they're saying, well, if you can't do after the November election, we'll take it in August as well. And some analysts believe that his lawyers are intentionally doing that to try to delay the proceedings for his other Jack Smith case, the other federal case, which is the uh, the election, the election case. So basically, this all comes down to what has been a strategy for Donald Trump when it comes to his legal cases, which is delay, 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 pass the November election, and then and wait for the outcome here. Um, and he's so far, with all the appeals that he's been making and with all the pretrial proceedings that have been going on, he's been fairly successful at that. Wow. Well, the head reels at all the cases we're talking about here. Meanwhile, in Georgia, Trump and his co-defendants are seeking to have Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis removed from the election interference case. They claim that she had an inappropriate relationship with the lead prosecutor, Nathan Wade. On Tuesday, Nathan Wade's former divorce lawyer, Terrence Bradley, testified about Wade's relationship with Fonnie Willis. What did Nathan Wade tell you about the relationship? I recall him stating that at some point they were dating. Uh, I can't tell you what date that was. It was made in confidence. 
All right. That was Nathan Wade's former lawyer, Terrence Bradley, testifying in an Atlanta courtroom on Tuesday. Jordan, Bradley was questioned about text messages that he sent saying Wade and Willis became romantically involved before Willis hired him. Bradley said he didn't know when the relationship began. I know this sounds like soap opera high drama, um, you know, from the CW channel or something, but why is this timeline so important? That's right. Uh, it's it's all a bit salacious, but it does speak to the question of whether there was a conflict of interest between Fannie Willis, the prosecuting attorney in the Georgia case, and Nathan Wade, who she brought on as a special counsel, uh, paid a lot of money to uh, you know act as as a special counsel in that case. The Trump's lawyers, uh, Trump's uh, one of the defendants, is trying to get them disqualified. And, and to some Ming's point, this would further you know, delay this trial. They'd have to find a new prosecutor. So this is really a key maneuver here uh, for the Trump allies. And uh, look, the, the fact that he couldn't remember a lot of these details, you know, that would suggest that uh, you, that could undercut this effort to you know, disqualify Fannie Willis from being the prosecutor. Uh, but, but also at the same time, he contradicted those, those text messages he sent to, um, to members of Trump's defense team about when the, the Fannie Way nathan Willis relationship began. So you know, does the judge say, well, he couldn't substantiate the claims, uh, therefore we're going to keep her on? Or you know, he's an unreliable witness. I, I think this is all un, untoward and we're getting rid of Fonnie, getting rid of Fonnie Willis. That's a tough question that he's going to have to mm-hmm. decide. And we have the closing arguments happening today. Well, we have even more drama from Georgia, which is that the Republican governor, Brian Kemp, said that Willis's prosecution against Trump in his Georgia election interference case is looking, quote, more political. But then he immediately said he needed to be careful about what he said because he had been subpoenaed by Willis. So Steve, fill us in, remind listeners why Kemp is significant and why does what he says matter? Well, Governor Kemp has not been a big fan of President Trump in this process, number one. Number two, uh, he has been from the very beginning of this, someone saying, hey, we need to play it straight up, play it straight by the game, and that everyone looks at this case, where it's going, and the various actors we're seeing in what Jordan just called the soap opera, depending on how they want to see the outcome of this. Uh, right now, we're all talking about Fannie Willis. We're not talking about Donald Trump's effort to undermine the election and to influence the Georgia Secretary of State. And that was one of President Trump's goals in this process. And I think that's what Governor Brian Kemp is referring to. That's Semaphore's Steve Clemens. We're also speaking with Sung Min Kim from the AP and Bloomberg's Jordan Fabian. We will have more coming up after the short break. I'm Indira Lakshmanan. You're listening to 1A. Stay with us. Recently on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Hari Kondabolu offered everyone a way to make a little extra cash. I'd pay $6 a finger. I'm Peter Sagal. You'd need not sacrifice any extremities to enjoy this week's show from Austin, Texas with rapper Danny Brown. Join us for a show with all of its fingers and toes. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Listen tomorrow morning at 10, Sunday at noon on 89.1 WGLT.
Retired professor Tom Clemens of Normal may be an amateur artist, but he's been putting colors to canvas for a half century. Clemens says painting helps him see the beauty in the world. What it gives me is a sense of connection to what's around me, to nature, and to uh, life. And he's part of an amateur exhibition that opens tonight. That's coming up on the next Sound Ideas, WGLT's news magazine, made possible in part by Bloomington Normal Audiology. Listen this afternoon, beginning at 5. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. From the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, dedicated to improving the learning experience for America's students by sharing what works in pre-K through 12 education at edutopia.org. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is 1A. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, and it's the Friday News Roundup. We're on today with Steve Clemens of Semaphore, Sungmin Kim of the AP, and Jordan Fabian of Bloomberg. Sungmin, on Wednesday, an appeals court judge denied former President Trump's request to pause enforcement of a $450 million payment that he owes in New York. In a court filing, the former president says he doesn't have the money to pay up. So tell us, why did the judge deny Trump's request? And what happens if Trump really doesn't have the money to pay nearly half a billion dollars that he owes? That's actually a really good question because that is a lot of money, even those for even for someone who is self-proclaimed as wealthy as Donald Trump with Donald Trump says he is. And there's actually a very good New York Times article laying this out. It seems like the likeliest option is that Donald Trump could ask a company to post a bond on his behalf, which is basically an IOU. Uh, they would put up a certain small percentage, I believe that's three percent of the overall amount. That basically prevent that action basically prevents. The the New York Attorney General's office from collecting that money while his inevitable appeals process is ongoing. Um, but, you know, if he doesn't pony up that money, post a bond, or for whatever reason, while all that's going on, the appeals process, uh, his appeals are denied in, collect, in, in, in protesting that collection, that $450 million collection, the Attorney General's office could then move to seize certain assets that he has. And those assets include things like Trump Tower, things that are so um, central to his identity as a businessman, someone who knows the economy, someone who knows how to, who knows how to do business and bring wealth back. And that would certainly, I mean, of of all the remarkable developments that we talk about when it comes to Donald Trump, that would certainly be quite the, quite, hmm. the, quite the development there. Well, we could spend the entire hour talking about Trump's legal cases, but we won't do that this time. So let's travel over to the U.S.-Mexico border, where President Biden and Donald Trump both visited the border on Thursday and delivered starkly different messages in what made for quite a striking split screen image. Trump spoke about his border security priorities from Eagle Pass, Texas, while Biden met border agents in Brownsville. 
instead of telling members of Congress to block this legislation, join me, or I'll join you in telling the Congress to pass this bipartisan border security bill. We can do it together. You know and I know it's the toughest, most efficient, most effective border security bill this country has ever seen. So instead of playing politics with the issue, why don't we just get together and get it done? That was President Joe Biden sending a very strong message to his rival for the presidency. The border may be the hottest of all the hot-button issues right now in domestic politics. It's a rallying point for Republicans who are seen as tougher on illegal immigration or certainly portray themselves that way. Steve, tell us why President Biden is leaning into this issue now and what is his calculation here? Well, I think he's leaning into it because you have a lot of uh, Americans on both sides of the aisle that are frustrated with what they see, particularly in cities, Chicago, uh, Philadelphia, New York, um, major Democratic leaders saying, please help us do something. We're being overrun with um, migrants that we can't manage. And it also creates a real challenge for the way Billy, American ethic about how we look at asylum and the legality and importance of asylum and helping those abroad, but how the volume of asylum cases is simply overrun and jammed uh, the federal judicial system and concerns about the vulnerability of that. You've played what Joe Biden said in outreaching to Donald Trump. What Donald Trump said is the United States is being overrun by the Biden, Biden migrant crime. And so he is tagging Joe Biden with all of the issues. And occasionally we've had a case, recently a case, where a, a migrant had come in, an, uh, an immigrant who'd come in and, and killed uh, a young woman. And so he's using these cases to basically weaponize this issue in this in this political race. Sungmin, you were with the president at the border on Thursday. Tell us what happened. So the, the, this White House uh, event was very much choreographed to make President Biden's case that it is more resources that are needed to help these people on the ground who are dealing with a number of migrants who are arriving at the Mexico border and that there was a solution, a legislative solution, and Republicans blocked it. So what we did when we traveled uh, with the president yesterday is we first went to right down to the border. We were in a little, um, you know, little area off a dusty, gravelly road right next to the Rio Grande. You know, Mexico was not too far away from us. And he was briefed by senior officials from Border Patrol about what they are doing on the ground there, what they have been doing in Brownsville that has made the numbers of uh, migrants go relatively or go down relative to other sectors along the U.S.-Mexico border. Alejandro Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary, said that was due in part to increased cooperation from Mexico, which really underscores the administration's argument that this is a regional issue. It is not just being tough on the border by the president of the United States, but you need cooperation from other countries in the region um, to make this problem, to make this, to make this issue, uh, to ease this, to ease this issue. And then he met firsthand with various uh, officials from various immigration agencies, whether it's citizens and immigration services, immigrations and customs enforcement. And they told him various things, but they told the one kind of through line there is that we just need resources. We need money. We need personnel. We need bodies. We need we need we need everything here. And that's when President Biden really took the opportunity to say, "Congressional Republicans, at the behest of Donald Trump, 
killed this killed this solution, killed this bill that would have provided all of those things. Hmm. Now, they're hoping to make that argument resonate uh, in the coming months, particularly as immigration remains a vulnerability for President Biden and Democrats. I'm never sure how process arguments stick with voters outside of Washington, but it's certainly something that they're going to try um, in, a, in the next several weeks and months. Okay. Well, according to Gallup's February polling, 28% of Americans now say that immigration is the most most important issue facing the country. That is up from 20% in January and dramatically up from just 8% last June. Jordan, Trump talks about so-called migrant crime, as Steve Clemens was telling us. There's an assumption that immigrants drive up crime rates. But aside from the anecdote that Steve gave us, FBI uniform crime statistics indicate that that's not actually true, that native-born Americans are convicted of crimes at a much higher rate than immigrants. So how much do the facts matter here, or is it more about fear? You know, unfortunately, Indira, I, I think it's the latter. Uh, you know, you, Democrats have, for a long time have uh, tried to tout these studies showing that you know, crime rates among immigrant groups are less than native-born populations, that you know, most people are coming to the United States for a better life, for, for a better opportunity. Uh, but Republicans have proven themselves very adept at, at seizing on these instances uh, where immigrants you know, commit violent crimes and you know, broadcasting them across social channels. Channels, Fox News, etc. The latest example is Lake and Riley, uh, the, the Georgia uh, student who was uh, sadly killed allegedly by uh, someone who is not in the country uh, legally from uh, Venezuela. So I, I, you would expect to continue to see uh, those kinds of efforts pushed by Donald Trump and his allies uh, as the election gets closer. All right. Well, let's travel from Texas to Michigan. On Tuesday, Joe Biden and Donald Trump easily won their party's primaries. But a closer look at the results should give both cause for concern. We're asking you, President Biden, to stop killing our families before you come and ask for our support. If he doesn't get it together and change what he's doing, we will not vote for him in November. I'm so proud of the results because they're far greater than anticipated. If states like Colorado and Michigan and Minnesota want to start winning again, you have to have somebody on the ticket that can win a general election. That was Nikki Haley and Donald Trump talking about the GOP vote in Michigan. Before them, two local Arab Americans who were part of a substantial protest vote that have could have big consequences in November. Steve, a lot of attention has been paid to the number of Democrats who voted uncommitted in Michigan. What are your takeaways from the results there? They This uncommitted group um, is reportedly very frustrated with President Biden's support of Israel and the Israel-Gaza crisis that's unfolding and his lack of, you know, I guess, muscularity, if you will, in, uh, you know, compelling Israel Prime Minister Netanyahu to a ceasefire in the Palestine-Gaza crisis. And so when you look at that situation, it is driving doubt. Other issues of doubt out there, too. I, there's something generationally going on in both parties where, where one, college-educated GOPers seem to be going to Nikki Haley, not Donald Trump. And a lot of college youth in the Democratic Party are expressing ambivalence about the Biden-Kamala-Harris ticket. They don't share the same worldview. They don't look at the equities that the United States has abroad in the same way. And I think it's one of the you know vulnerabilities that Biden has going into this. What's interesting is Nikki Haley uh, probably gave you know the, the best quote in this, saying you know Joe Biden is losing about twenty percent of Democratic votes. Trump is losing about thirty five percent 
we don't know where they go. There's no Joe Manchin or Larry Hogan or others out there in a, in a, in a genuine third-party uh, uh, effort right now. But there's a lot of disaffected Americans that do not like either of the candidates right now, and that's what we saw in Michigan. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Well, Sung-min, what concerns should President Biden have in an election year that members of his own party are being more openly critical of Israel's conduct of the war in Gaza and implicitly critical of his hesitation to do so? Right. I mean, that is so much of the of the that is fueling so much of the intraparty anger against the president right now, which is his administration's handling of the war in Gaza. And if you're looking at the uncommitted vote, if you talk to campaign officials, they'll try to downplay the uncommitted result. They're, they say that, oh, it's actually only 13 percent of the results. Um, if you the last time there was an organized uncommitted effort back in 2008, it actually got 40 percent of the Democratic primary vote. So this was expected. They don't see this as a huge they publicly don't see this as a huge problem just yet. But as the war goes on, and right now there is no, despite the president's work in trying to secure a temporary ceasefire deal to release some hostages, maybe even as early as the next couple of weeks, that, you know, the the end to the overall war is still hard to see. And as and as the images, as the as as the images continue to come out of the region and as we continue to hear these horrible stories, the anger among Democrats is really starting to grow, particularly in Michigan, where there is a large Arab American Muslim population. And because Michigan is going to be so close and so pivotal in a general election, President Biden, in a, in a radio interview earlier this week, called it, it one of the five states that will determine who wins in November. Mm-hmm. Any Anything and everything helps and hurts in Michigan for the president for his reelection campaign. And if you're looking at 100,000 people who chose and committed, obviously, Some of them will vote for President Biden at the end of the day when it is a binary choice between him and Donald Trump. But some of them won't. Some of them will vote for a third party candidate. Some will write someone in. A lot of them may just stay at home. All right. Well, let's hold that thought. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, and this is 1A. Jordan, Michigan's Governor Gretchen Whitmer is being held up as someone who could make a difference to turnout and to who wins in November. Tell us quickly why she's attracting more national attention. Well, she's really emerged as a a rising star in the Democratic Party over the last few years. She, uh, in the last uh, election, presided over big wins in Michigan. It was sort of the antidote to uh, what Ron DeSantis did down in Florida, where Democrats uh, not only uh, won the governorship again, they they won a trifecta. Uh, They have control of both state legislatures. Keep in mind, this is a battleground state, so that is a significant achievement. So they're able to do things like put in place safeguards to make sure you know, election results aren't fiddled with. And there are, she's also been a leading voice on the abortion rights issue, which is, is of course, a key priority for Democrats mm-hmm. heading into the November election. All right. Well, the biggest day of this year's primary campaign is approaching. 16 states will vote next week on Super Tuesday. The contest will unfold from Alaska and California to Virginia and Vermont. We will be making time next Wednesday to hear from you, our listeners, with a team on the ground in Birmingham, Alabama. We will dissect the Super Tuesday results and talk about the ongoing arguments in Alabama that have upended IVF treatment in the state. All right. 
very quickly from each of you, I'd just love to hear a top line of what you are looking forward to this week. Who or what will you be watching next week that we haven't talked about, Steve? Well, we just talked about Super Tuesday. Everything is Super Tuesday and what drives, what we learn from it and see it. That's what we'll be doing next week. <laughs> All right. Sung Min, what about you? President Biden is giving a State of the Union address next Thursday. And obviously, everyone watches that speech every year. But this one, much more important because it's an election year. Thank you so much for reminding us of that. We will be talking about that on next week's shows as well. Jordan, what about you? What's in your notebook? And I'm looking forward to what the president does after the State of the Union. How does he harness that momentum and uh, push his message forward at a time when Democrats are really urging him to get out to the country more, get on the campaign trail? What, how is he going to travel and push that message? Well, that's a really good question. And again, another one that we will be looking to talk more about, especially in the aftermath of the Super Tuesday results. Now, one more note this week. Fans of Curb Your Enthusiasm have been talking about a recent scene that featured the comedian Richard Lewis, who died at his home in Los Angeles earlier this week. In that scene, Richard gets into an argument with star Larry David about a topic that feels especially poignant in light of what happened this week. I'm leaving you in my will. I'm tweaking it, and you're in it. No, no, no. Don't, don't do that. It's done. You're in. I don't want to be in it. I have money. I don't need it. Give it to someone who needs it. When I die, I want you to know how much I care about you. I'm not going to keep it. I'm going to give it to charity. You're my best friend. You're getting it. No, I'm making a Sherman-esque statement about the will right now. I'm sick of your historical references. If nominated, I will not run. If bequeathed, I will not accept. Well, I'm bequeathing. Well, I'm not accepting. Well, you'll have to accept. Don't give it to me. Don't hurt my feelings. Don't hurt my feelings. Richard Lewis was 76, and a lot of us are going to miss him. Our thanks this week go to Semaphore's Steve Clemens, to the Associated Press's Sungmin Kim, and to Bloomberg's Jordan Fabian. Mike Kidd is 1A's sound designer and engineer with help from Kennedy Wright. Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Amanda Williams is our special projects editor. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Indira Lakshmanan. Todd Zwillick will be here on Monday. Jen White will be keeping you company through Super Tuesday and beyond from Birmingham, Alabama. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great weekend. This is 1A, and I'm Indira Lakshmanan. Support for NPR comes from the station and from the law firm Cooley LLP. With offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. From Made in Cookware, Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. 
Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. Well, I got bored, basically. Ethan Cohen returns to theaters after a break without his brother, but still in the family. We're very comfortable and understand the way each other thinks. That's Tricia Cook. Look at her husband Ethan Cohen's drive-away dolls and all the latest news, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Listen tomorrow between 7 and 10 a.m. on 89.1 WGLT. There aren't a lot of opportunities in life to let your true feelings out. And that's what mannequin pussy frontwoman Missy DeBeast was looking for when she started the band. Those early days was just like pick up a guitar and just scream. Their songwriting has evolved from there, but there's still some screaming on the new album. And you'll hear all about it when mannequin pussy joins me on the next World Cafe. Listen for World Cafe tonight at 7 on WGLT, Bloomington Normal's public media. Here's what's going on around Bloomington Normal. The Miller Park Zoo Stampede is March 2nd at 10 a.m. There will be a 5K run, a 3K walk, and quarter-mile kids' fun run. The race will go through Miller Park, the surrounding neighborhood, and zoo. Support the zoo by buying tickets at mpzs.org. Submit your on-air community announcements at wglt.org. From the campus of Illinois State University, this is 89.1 WGLT Normal, part of the NPR Network. The crowd at Alexei Navalny's funeral chants, we won't forget you. The Kremlin makes every effort to ensure the rest of the world does. From WAMU and NPR in Washington, this is 1A. Hi, I'm Indira Lakshmanan, and it's the Friday News Roundup. President Putin's most outspoken critic has been laid to rest on the outskirts of Moscow. Thousands show up to pay their respects despite the risk of arrest. In Gaza, hopes for a ceasefire fade after an aid delivery turns deadly. Palestinian officials blame Israeli gunfire. Israeli officials blame a stampede. We wrap up the biggest stories from overseas this week, and we'd love to hear from you. Email us at 1A at WAMU.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Korva Coleman. Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny was laid to rest in Moscow today. Thousands of supporters gathered outside the church and cemetery to pay respects. The U.S. ambassador to Russia was there, too, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. Ambassador Lynn Tracy was joined by other diplomats as they laid flowers at the cemetery. In a tweet, the embassy writes that Alexei Navalny remains a shining example of what Russia could and should be and calls his death a, quote, tragic reminder of the length the Kremlin will go to silence its critics. In a live stream YouTube video, supporters of Navalny say that music from Terminator 2 played as Navalny's coffin was lowered into the ground. They also showed scenes of the crowds outside the church in Moscow chanting Navalny's name. He was a fierce critic of Russian President Vladimir Putin, and his supporters blame Putin for Navalny's death in an Arctic penal colony. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The former Air National Guardsman charged with leaking secret Pentagon documents is expected to plead guilty. Jack Teixeira was arrested last year after allegedly posting classified military material online. 
NPR's Ryan Lucas reports. Teixeira was indicted in June by a grand jury in Boston on six counts of willful retention and transmission of classified information. The 22-year-old is accused of sharing a trove of secret U.S. government national security documents, including about the war in Ukraine, on the popular social media platform Discord. He initially pleaded not guilty to the charges, but now prosecutors have filed a motion in federal court in Boston asking for a change of plea hearing, indicating that some sort of plea agreement has been reached. No details on it were immediately available, but the judge overseeing the case has agreed to the hearing and scheduled it for Monday. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Kentucky's governor says he would sign into law bills that protect in vitro fertilization. From member station WUKY, Karen Zarr has more. When asked about the Alabama Supreme Court's ruling on in vitro fertilization treatments, Governor Andy Bashir called it, quote, horrendous and said many of his friends have expanded their families using IVF. Bashir says he supports any action to safeguard the procedure. We have so many wonderful people in our world, children of God, because of those scientific advancements. So I would support anything that we would need to further protect that access in Kentucky. Since the Alabama ruling, a bill has been filed to shield fertility providers in Kentucky from criminal liability. For NPR News, I'm Karen Czar in Lexington. Texas officials say the wildfire burning in the state's panhandle has scorched nearly 1,700 square miles. The Smokehouse Creek fires killed two people and crossed into Oklahoma. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. Weather forecasters are telling people in eastern California to hunker down where they are for safety. A significant blizzard is arriving, and it could bring as much as 10 feet of snow by the end of the weekend to the Lake Tahoe area. Wind gusts could reach hurricane strength. There are more blizzard warnings posted for eastern Nevada. State lawmakers in Oregon have taken a big step toward recriminalizing the use of street drugs. The measure could go to the state Senate later today. NPR's Brian Mann reports it would roll back one of the biggest reforms to drug policy in U.S. history. Since the 1970s, U.S. addiction policy has focused mostly on policing and arrests. Hundreds of thousands of people who use street drugs have been locked up. In 2020, Oregon voters approved a ballot measure that decriminalized personal use amounts of drugs, shifting the focus to health care and treatment. But those reforms came just as the COVID pandemic was hitting, along with the fentanyl and housing crises. Oregon saw more street drug use and more overdoses, and these reforms, known as Measure 110, have faced a major public backlash. Now Democrats and Republicans Republicans in Oregon appear on track to make drug use a crime again. Supporters say the threat of punishment will pressure more people to get treatment. Critics say it's a return to drug war era policies that haven't worked. Brian Mann, NPR News. A former U.S. ambassador says he will plead guilty to charges of spying for Cuba. Victor Manuel Roca is expected to admit he worked as an illegal foreign agent during the two decades that he served as a U.S. diplomat. Roca could receive a 15-year prison term in exchange for his plea deal. He was arrested last year after he met with an undercover FBI agent. This is NPR. Support for NPR comes from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macbound.org. Scientists have just wrapped a detailed study of a crucial glacier in West Antarctica which holds back a giant sheet of ice, and they say they have a clearer picture of future sea level rise. I think we have 
been able to get a better forecast for uh, what's likely to come out of Antarctica over the next uh, century or so. That story on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today at 3 on 89.1 WGLT and WGLT.org. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, and this is the 1A Global News Roundup. Coming up this hour... Under heavy police presence, thousands of Russians bade farewell to opposition leader Alexei Navalny at his funeral in Moscow. And later... It's an extraordinary step forward for French women, but it's also an extraordinary step forward for all women across the world. That's a global first. The French Senate votes to enshrine abortion rights in the country's constitution. Our guides through this hour are Greg Karlstrom in Dubai. He's Middle East correspondent at The Economist, and he's also author of How Long Will Israel Survive the Threat from Within? Welcome, Greg. Thanks for having me. Also with us, Emily Tamkin, reporter and author of the book Bad Jews, a history of American Jewish politics and identities and co-host of the Election Tricycle podcast. Hello, Emily. Hi, thanks for having me. And James Kitfield, he's a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress and author of the book In the Company of Heroes, the Inspiring Stories of Medal of Honor Recipients from America's Longest Wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Welcome, James. Good to be with you. So it's been two weeks since the death of Putin critic and Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny in an Arctic penal colony at the age of 47. Russian authorities claim that Navalny died of natural causes after taking a walk, but his family and Western leaders blame the prominent dissident's death on Russian President Vladimir Putin, whose government famously tried to poison Navalny at least once before. His funeral was held today at a church in Moscow. When the hearse arrived at the church, the coffin was taken out of the vehicle as hundreds in the crowd applauded and chanted, Navalny, Navalny. Some also shouted, you weren't afraid, neither are we. Greg, it's striking that Russians were willing to show up for the funeral of the country's most prominent dissident, especially after so many people have been arrested across the country in the last weeks simply for placing flowers at makeshift memorials. Why are they taking the chance now? It was striking, and there's a certain dark symmetry to it to think that Alexei Navalny used to lead these sorts of protests, and he was a rare figure in Putin's Russia who was able to mobilize crowds for uh, pro-democracy or, or anti-Putin demonstrations. And now uh, his his final act, if you will, is is mobilizing one last crowd. And it's an act of real personal courage on the part of the protesters. I mean, I, I don't cover Russia, but I cover plenty of other authoritarian autocratic countries and showing up for a rally like this when there is a risk of mass arrest, there is a risk of police violence. It's an act of courage and it speaks to very deep grievances that exist in the country. And, you know, for every person who came out to this protest, there were probably plenty of others in Russia who weren't willing to take the risk, but, but share uh, his complaints about Putin, about the, the corruption of the Russian government, about 
Russia's policy in Ukraine, about various other things, and and uh, supported the aims of this this demonstration. Speaking of courage, Navalny's widow Yulia has said she will take on the mantle of the opposition from her dead husband. And this week, she addressed European lawmakers in Strasbourg at the European Parliament, appealing to them to be more creative in dealing with the threat from Putin. You cannot hurt Putin with another resolution or another set of sanctions. That is no different from the previous ones. You cannot defeat him by thinking he is a man of principle who has morals and rules. He is not like that. And Alexei realized that a long time ago. You are not dealing with a political Uh, You are not dealing with a politician, but with a bloody monster. Emily, Yulia Navalnaya also spoke of the so-called beautiful Russia that she and her husband had dreamed of after President Putin leaves office. But there is no sign of Putin leaving. The Russian leader is set to be reinstalled with a new six-year term in two weeks via elections in which he faces no real opposition. Emily, you've lived in Russia. Help us understand what people there see in their future. I did. I studied abroad at a program that's since been closed by the Russian government. So it, it sort of, it, you know, it speaks to, and this was around the time that, that Navalny was was sort of coming up as a as an opposition leader. So it, it you know, it, it's sad to think of all that's passed between now and then. I, and I think we should be clear when they speak of a beautiful future in Russia, they're t- they're speaking about a country with rule of law. They're speaking of a country in which people don't have to pay bribes with, 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 without corruption, um, in which the wealth of the country hasn't been allegedly stolen by a very few people at the top and, and their circle of friends. Um, and when will we see that? You know, to, to Greg's point, it's not that it's not that it's not as though with Navalny's death, there's no brave people left in Russia. That's not true. There were people who were assembled at the funeral today, but he was the a significant opposition leader. There's other, you know. Vladimir Karamuza is is in jail. There are other political prisoners, and I think, I think, unfortunately, um, we should expect to see more crackdowns in Russia and greater authoritarianism, and yes, greater you know reported corruption um, mm-hmm. before we see the beautiful future described uh, just there. Yesterday, the Financial Times reported on leaked military documents that revealed Russia's doctrine for tactical nuclear weapons use, including the minimum criteria for using those nuclear weapons. James, what are some of the biggest revelations from those 29 Russian military files, which date from 2008 to 2014? Well, the primary one is that the the threshold for Russia's potential use of tactical nuclear weapons is, is quite a bit lower than a lot of people assumed. Uh, and I think that that speaks to what we've seen in Ukraine, which is the conventional forces of Russia were always somewhat suspect in a lot of people's minds. And they've proven that in Ukraine and their failures to take over the country as they tried two years ago. So uh, and this gets to why, you know, President Biden has been very careful about crossing a red line. And we're having to sort of dust off the sort of doctrine of nuclear use of mutually assured destruction that, you know, ruled during the Cold War. And he sensed, as as during the Cold War, that NATO does not want to be in a direct conflict with Russian troops. So this week we saw, for instance, the president of France say, you know, perhaps 
um, we, we will send troops in to help defend Ukraine. And it immediately, you know, it provoked a nuclear sable rattling from Putin. So these things, you know, this is a very real danger and we're having to sort of get used to the idea again of, of how do you keep red lines in place that don't allow for the use of weapons because clearly this, this revelation is that they, the threshold in Russia for using them is lower than we thought. Hmm. And James, how has Russia reacted to the leak of these documents? Well, you know, it hasn't, it just kind of uh, says there's nothing to see here and moves on. It's the typical Putin uh, mm-hmm. playbook. Um, whenever something is embarrassing or, or revealing that they don't like, uh, it's, it's nothing to see here and move on. Mm-hmm. Now, Greg, it was interesting. These documents also indicated a distrust of China, despite strengthened ties between Moscow and Beijing. The Financial Times reported that Russia's eastern military district conducted exercises that imagined a hypothetical attack by Russia. What does this say about whether Moscow actually sees China as a threat? I think there's been a lot of talk over the past two years in official circles in Moscow and Beijing. The the public rhetoric that you hear is that this is an unshakable alliance or partnership between these two countries. And Russia, of course, being now isolated in the West, is very keen to show that it has other friends and, and China remains on its side and China Uh, more or less has gone along with its invasion of Ukraine. But there's always been, uh, I think, a deep element of mistrust in this relationship. And arguably, it's gotten bigger over the past couple of years. Russia becoming more and more economically isolated. That leaves it more and more reliant on China. Uh, And and it's changed the balance of power in their relationship. And Mm -hmm. it's made Russia, in some ways, almost subordinate to Mm -hmm. China. And that's something that that exacerbates the the pre-existing tensions there. Well, you know, the fear of war seems to be everywhere. And in his annual State of the Nation address, Vladimir Putin warned NATO countries that they will risk nuclear war if they send troops to Ukraine. They should eventually understand that we also have weapons, and they know it. I just said it now myself, weapons that can hit targets on their territory. Everything that the West is coming up with now, what they threaten the world with, it can result in a conflict with the use of nuclear weapons and therefore the destruction of civilization. So, Emily, Putin has warned against direct confrontation between NATO and Russia before, particularly at the start of his full-scale invasion of Ukraine. But this latest speech seems like his most explicit threat yet. Why now? Does he see victory in Ukraine within his reach? And he's worried that, you know, the West might mess that up by sending troops in in a desperate measure to save Ukraine? Yeah, I do think that sending troops in from, say, France or from NATO countries that in his mind, this would and it would be a shift, right? It would be a direct conflict with NATO in a way that thus far Russia has not um, has not had to had to face. And I think, you know, to your point about does he see victory within reach? I think that like everyone else, uh, Putin has access to the news and can see that, you know, Congress is stalled on providing um, further funding for Ukraine, knows that there is an election coming up in November. Um, 
and and so thinks time is on his side. We should also just very briefly note that time is on his side in part because he's willing to commit tens of thousands of Russian soldiers to die in Ukraine for this. Mm -hmm. Like a meat grinder, it's been referred to. That's reporter and author Emily Tamkin. We're also speaking with reporter and author James Kitfield and reporter and author Greg Karlstrom. I'm Indira Lakshmanan. We have much more to come after the break on the International News Roundup, so stay with us. This is 1A. March is Women's History Month, and WGLT is recognizing 21 women who shaped Bloomington normal. I'm Melissa Ellen. Eva Jones was the first woman ever elected to District 87 school board. She was also the first person of color to make it there. This was in 1971, following increased racial tensions. Jones brokered a peace between black students and white leadership. Charles Alsbury of Normal is a black community activist who considered Jones a political mentor. With Eva Jones, somebody was now sitting at the table. In 1976, Jones became District 87 school board president. Three years later, she was on Bloomington City Council, entering a new space again for the black community. Alsbury says Jones' legacy goes beyond being a first. She was an inspiration. That's why they got the first in front of her. It's not first because she's the first woman or the first African-American. She was the first to really inspire our community to do more unity together. Learn more about Eva Jones and others who shape Bloomington normal at WGLT.org slash 21 women. I'm Melissa Ellen. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday. With AI at the core of its platform, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR platform for a changing world. From Made in Cookware, Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, and this is 1A. It's the Friday News Roundup. We're rounding up the global headlines with Greg Carlstrom, Middle East correspondent at The Economist, Emily Tamkin, reporter and contributing editor to The Forward, and James Kitfield, senior fellow at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. So this week marked more than two years since the full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And in an address to the nation, a very defiant Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, insisted that his nation will win the war. 
We have become 730 days closer to victory. Someone is waiting for some sort of fortune teller to give us the end date. But millions of Ukrainians just remember a great quote from our poet Kobzar. Keep fighting, you are sure to win. None of us will allow our Ukraine to end. In the future, next to the word Ukraine, the word independent will always stand. James' very stirring words from Zelensky, but he later acknowledged for the first time since the war began a death toll of 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers. The number can't be verified, and it's lower than what the United States estimates. But how important was that acknowledgement from him? Well, I think it, it gets to the point where, you know, he's trying to um, sort of counteract Russian propaganda, as he refers to it, that says it's been their, their losses have been roughly double that in, in the range of 60,000. And he wanted to put a marker in the ground saying that, yes, I know that we've had great losses, but, um, you know, and the, the real sort of uh, genesis, you know, the, the, the nut of that speech was a rallying cry, as you said, for, you know, we're, we're in this fight, we're in, in this fight to win. And uh, as you mentioned, the American uh, estimate of their losses is even higher, something around 70,000. But I, I was struck by how determined, you know, he was kind of Churchillian uh, rallying cry at this two-year mark of the war from, from Zelensky. While in Congress, we have this uncertain trumpet being, being called by, you know, the House Republicans who are basically abandoning uh, Ukraine to the tender mercies of Putin because they have holding up this, this aid package, this critically needed aid package for going on, you know, four or five months now. Well, actually, so, I want to ask you about that. His comments, as you say, come as more than $60 billion in U.S. aid to Ukraine is still in limbo in Congress. So how vital is that aid and is Ukraine doomed to fail without it? Well, it's absolutely vital. I mean, if we've seen just in recent weeks, the Russian forces have made advances on a number of axes um, in the east. And that's because basically the Ukrainian forces are having to ration uh, artillery. And, and, you know, the Russians can, can fire five to, to one artillery cells versus the Ukrainian forces. So it's having a direct impact. And if, if it persists um, for many more months, then yes, Ukraine could lose this war, absolutely. And, and that is why this aid package has been so critical. There is, a, there is a, you know, a plurality in the Senate who have approved it, and there's a plurality in the House if the Speaker will put it to a vote. But he has shown he will not for the last four or five months. And, and much is riding on his decision right now, including possibly Ukraine. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's talk now about another critical struggle, and that's Israel's war against Hamas. Gaza's health ministry says the number of people killed in the blockaded territory since October 7th has now surpassed 30,000 Palestinians. More than two-thirds of those are women and children. On the other side, more than 1,200 Israelis uh, have been killed since October 7th, most of them on the day when Hamas brutally attacked communities in the south of Israel. About Half of the approximately 250 Israeli hostages taken by Hamas remain captive. Israel says some of them have died. The families of hostages held in Gaza and their supporters are launching a four-day march from southern Israel to Jerusalem, demanding that their loved ones be set free. The march comes as the U.S., Egypt, and Qatar 
Qatar are working on a framework deal under which Hamas would free some of the dozens of the remaining hostages it holds in exchange for the release of Palestinian prisoners and a six-week halt to the fighting. Ronan Nutra is one of those marching. He's the father of dual American-Israeli citizen Omer, a 22-year-old soldier who has been held since October 7th. No one can be left behind, the living and the murdered. The War Cabinet is responsible for ensuring that the current deal, all the hostages, will be included. We cannot agree to leave any sector behind. The State of Israel cannot be fully restored without securing the release of all the hostages, the living and the murdered. Emily, for several weeks on this program, we've spoken about internal pressure on Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu from the families of hostages. They've protested in the streets. They've spoken in the Knesset. What impact will this march have, if any, on the prime minister and the war cabinet? You know, a study came out, a survey came out earlier this month that said that um, Israelis were asked, would you rather um, have Hamas out of Gaza, have the hostages, hostages returned, or can you not answer? And the the largest of those three was to Hamas destroyed, 40%. So, so for many Israelis, um, sadly, the return of the hostages is not a priority. Now, that said, a group of people marching to your place of work to tell you that they are unhappy with how you're doing your job um, is pressure. And, and we should also say that across those answers, many Israelis are not happy with Netanyahu, with the government, um, and want him out after the war, which one could suggest gives Netanyahu an incentive to continue the war that he not need to step down and face consequences for his actions up to this point. Hmm. Well, as we mentioned earlier, negotiations are underway in Qatar this week to bring about some sort of cessation of hostilities. Also this week, the Palestinian Authority's Prime Minister, Mohammed Shatouya, and his government submitted their resignations. Greg, the Palestinian Authority now administers parts of the Israeli-occupied West Bank, and the U.S. and other nations would like to see a reformed Palestinian Authority governing post-war Gaza as well, ahead of eventual Palestinian statehood. Could this resignation be the first step in a process to overhaul the Palestinian Authority as part of a post-war vision for a two-state solution? That is what the Biden administration hopes, and they have dangled the prospect of uh, expanded financial aid for the PA, and this is meant to be part of their uh, broader plan that would include a Saudi-Israeli normalization deal and then some sort of serious push uh, to negotiate a two-state solution. Now, if you've been following the region for a while, you might have felt a sense of deja vu this week because something very similar happened in 2003 when the Bush administration was promoting its roadmap for peace. Uh, they felt Yasser Arafat had become uh, too corrupt and too difficult to deal with. They pushed him to name a technocratic prime minister. And that prime minister was none other than Mahmoud Abbas, who, of course, went on to become president and is now in the 19th year of his four-year term. So history has a way of repeating itself. The frontrunner right now to replace Mohammed Shteya as prime minister uh, seems to be Mohammed Mustafa, who is a well-regarded economist, heads the Sovereign Wealth Fund in Palestine. He's thought of as someone who could clean up the PA. But he would have to do that without any resources. The PA is more or less broke at this point. 
without any change in the president, this corrupt autocratic president who's been in power for almost 20 years, and also without any prospect of ending the Israeli occupation in the foreseeable future, which is a, a central reason why so many Palestinians see the PA as illegitimate, as, as being a subcontractor for Israeli occupation. So it's it's a very hopeful idea that a new prime minister can change things, but I think in reality, uh, it's not likely to mean that much. Well, Greg, you're there in the region. You make the point that Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas has been in power for so long. The man is in his 80s. He's clung on to power. He's, what, in the 20th year of a what was meant to be a six-year term or something? Um, they The PA is deeply unpopular among the people, as you've indicated. Does the resignation that we've just seen address that lack of legitimacy? No, it doesn't, because the prime minister doesn't really have much power unless the president allows him to have power. Uh, both Shteya, the outgoing prime minister, and Rami Hamdallah, who was his predecessor, uh, they're, they're essentially yes-men. Hamdallah was an academic, Shteya has been an apparatchik in the PA for many, many years, and they were put there not to do much, not to be that influential. The one sort of reform-minded prime minister that Palestinians have had in the past two decades, Salem Fayyad, uh, clashed all the time with Mahmoud Abbas because they just did not agree on things and Abbas didn't want to go along with, with many of the forms, reforms that Fayyad was pushing. So as long as this president is still in power and as long as the PA is sort of drifting along as this visionless entity that doesn't really have a reason for being anymore, uh, I don't think uh, changing the identity of the prime minister is going to fix this crisis of legitimacy. Hmm. Well, more than 100 people were killed and about 700 wounded after Israeli forces fired at people in Gaza who were waiting for food aid from trucks. Israeli officials say the troops thought the people rushing towards the aid trucks, quote, posed a threat. But witnesses said Israeli troops fired on the people as they were pulling flour and canned goods off the trucks. The incident on Thursday has received widespread international condemnation. The White House has called for an investigation. James, could this latest tragedy complicate progress on the ceasefire talks or even end them? Uh, well, from my reporting in the Middle East, I, I, my my assumption is anything could could you know make things harder in terms of reaching a, a ceasefire deal. But I actually think that it's just another reminder that this humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza is not sustainable. Uh, you know, you saw those great, those horrible videos of the people swarming the trucks and then the apparently uh, the Israeli forces opening fire, although there is still being investigated. But I admit, there, this cannot go on 